0: Glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. If you have your Bibles with you, follow me back over to Romans chapter 12 as we continue our study in Paul's magnum opus the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. Our text today will be verses 14 through 21. 14 through 21. And the Bible says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but let it leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome; be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and once again we thank you for the privilege we have to be in your house, the opportunity we have, Lord, to come and to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, and to spend time studying your Word, trusting that you, through the person of the Holy Spirit, will implant your Word in our inner man, our inner being, and that it may become a seed for growth, that it may be used to sharpen our minds, to conform our minds into the image of Christ, and Lord, that you would use it in helping us to navigate this world around us, to help us to live in ways that bring glory and honor to your name, to help us, as Paul has told us at the beginning of this chapter, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. And Lord, today we come once again to your word, and we're asking for you to give us ears to hear, help us to have minds that can comprehend. And Father, we, as always, ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, so far we have learned from Paul at the beginning of this chapter, if you remember, In chapter 12, we we make a transition of sorts from the indicatives to the imperatives. The indicatives in the first half of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, Paul laid down the theology and theological truth of redemption by faith alone in Christ alone. And now in chapter 12, he's turned the corner and he's saying in light of this redemption that you have received in Christ, this is how you ought to live. And so he's told us as a summary statement that we ought not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind and that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice before God, which is our reasonable act of worship, a reasonable act of service. And the rest of Romans is really fleshing out what those first two verses in chapter 12 mean. What does it look like? to offer your body as a living sacrifice. What does it look like for your mind to be conformed into uh, the image of Christ or into the character uh, of God? How do we flesh that out among the body of Christ? How do we flesh that out as we interact with those who are outside of the body of Christ? And so that's what the remainder of this book is going to demonstrate for us and give us example to do. Last time that we were together, Uh, we learned from Paul what it looks like to live in light of redemption, in particular among the family of faith, how we ought to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Now today, Paul brings in another element, although I don't think he abandons that idea altogether because there's some passages in our text today that would lend themselves to still interacting with the family of faith. But I think Paul looks at a broader scope uh, in our text today to help us see, well, what does it look like when we interact with folks who are outside of the family of faith, and even those who may be in opposition to us who are believers in Christ Jesus. And so in order to help us unpack uh, this text today, I think uh, the best way I knew how to go about it was just to give you eight words uh, that will kind of summarize each one of the points, and then we'll elaborate, obviously, on those words and those points. So uh, I'm not going to read all eight of those words. We'll just catch them on the way through, okay? The first word that we come to, I think, or at least uh, thought that Paul brings forth is the idea of eulogy. Now, I know eulogy, that's something we, all, we, temp, we generally associate with funerals, right? Uh, but Paul, I think, has this in mind in verse 14. And so if you look at verse 14, he gives a positive command and a negative command. In other words, do this, but don't do this, And so the positive part of that command is to bless those who persecute you. And we get the word eulogy from that word that is translated in the English, to bless, and it really comes from a Greek word that gives us the English word eulogy. It's really made up of two words. It's made up of eu, e-u in the Greek, and then logos. We've heard logos before, right? We we know that in John chapter one and verse one, enarche, en, halagos, right? In the beginning was the word. And we've seen this logos before already in Paul's writings, but it's been couched in Uh, larger words has been the root of larger words like legizomai. Legidzomai has to do with imputation, right? Uh, Has to do with with, uh, accounting terms. So it has this idea of logic, but it also has this idea of speaking forth. And so in this context and in this word, it has to do with speaking things that are well. So speaking well about someone, hence the idea of eulogy. And so Paul is telling us that we as believers ought to do like our grandmas and moms used to tell us to do. If we don't have anything good to say, we ought not to say it, right? We ought to say good things about people. Well, shame on us, right? Because we don't always say good things about people. But not only does Paul say we ought to say good things about people, He tells us we ought to say good things about a particular group of people in this first part of verse 14. Say good things about those who are persecuting you. And we say, hold on just a minute, Paul. You know, let's think about this for just one moment. I get it. I can say good things about those people that I like, but it goes against my, you know, conscience or my better judgment to say good things about somebody who is after me right who is persecuting me that's really what the word behind this english word persecution is to pursue with hostility and it's it's a present active participle so it's not just a one-off it's not just they've done something wrong to you one time this is a person who is out to get you constantly and what does paul say speak well of that person. Well, I'm here to tell you, that's one of those things that I say is easy preaching and hard living, right? Because that's got to be God working in me for me to be able to say something good about a person who is pursuing me with hostility. Now in Paul's day, that was a present reality. Paul experienced that in his life uh, quite often, this hostility against those who are believers in Jesus Christ, and in the first century, uh, as we've studied in Revelation on Sunday night, you've seen that there is persecution in the first century against those who are, and spills on into the second century, and it goes on even today. But that's that is a that is a hard command for me, and I know you guys are not like me, but it is a hard command for me to speak well of someone who is out to get me. My inclination is to say, hey, you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel, right? And to speak ill of that person. But God has said that that is the redeeming character of Christ in us should drive us to speak well of people, even those people who seem to be out to get us. And then Paul goes even further than that. he tells us in the second part of this passage don't curse them." Now he reiterates the first part, right Bless those who persecute you, and then he has to say it again because he knows how hard headed we are. he says, bless that 's another imperative, and do not now, he's not saying don't cuss them out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying do not pronounce an evil curse on this person. Really, uh, behind the word, it has to do with this idea of uh, imprecate evil upon them. Now, we've heard the English word imprecate on Wednesday nights, haven't we? We've talked about imprecatory Psalms, right? And we've had discussion on Wednesday night. How do we, how do we deal with those areas where David is calling down the thunder on his enemies, right? In those Psalms that are there. Well, you know, I was thinking about this passage or that when I was thinking about this passage, because really that's what it's talking about. Don't pronounce this evil curse on someone. And I got to thinking about that. How do we reconcile this with what we read in what David does in the psalm? Because David is a righteous man, right? The Lord says he's a man after his own heart. Uh, Now we know David had his own problems just like you and I have our own problems. But one of the things I think that uh, the Lord brought to my mind is what we're gonna find out in, in a minute when we get to the end of this thing, that calling God to bring justice is not necessarily evil, right? That's one aspect of it, okay? Calling God to bring justice is not necessarily evil. Why? Because God, when he brings justice, he's gonna do it in a righteous, holy, justified way. And if I want justice to be done, guess what? I ought to leave it over to God to bring justice on someone. Okay. And now we talked about it and Tom and I were kidding about it this morning. He he said he had a chuckle Wednesday when we read in the Psalms about, uh, you know, David praying or the Psalmist praying uh, to confuse the minds of those who were doing evil because... Some of the ones who are in charge right now, it seems like their minds are already confused, right? And maybe that's why they're doing the things that they are, are doing. But that's another way to look at it is to, while we might not call down an evil curse on someone, I think the Bible does give us this um, truth or the okay to say, Lord, thwart their plans, stop their plans. I think that's an appropriate way to go about this. But you and I as believers, I think the main point that Paul is trying to get out, get at is you and I ought to be different than what most people who are in the world outside of Christ would be, whereas even those who are persecuting us, we will say well things about them, good things about them. Now, they may be very few. But if we speak about them, we will speak about them and say something good about them. And again, that's a God thing because I can't do that without God working in my life. So the second word is empathy. Empathy. Now, I actually looked this up because I had to think about it. You know, the difference between empathy and sympathy. Okay, And at least what I found when I looked it up. Sympathy is looking in on someone's circumstance as someone on the outside, and having a level of understanding about what they're going through, but from a distance, if you will. Whereas empathy is whenever you engage in the feelings and, and the emotions and and the burden or the adulation that's going on, you take part in those feelings. And I think that's what Paul is saying to us in this text in verse 15. Now, verse 15, we obviously you would hope that verse 14 is talking about those who are outside of the family of faith, right? Those who are persecuting us. So obviously Paul, I think, is showing us, hey, we ought to speak well of those even who are our enemies, if you will. And we'll encounter this again later. And in this passage, it could have a broader scope though that we, even those who are outside the family of faith, we, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. But it seems to lend to those that we have that familial relationship with that we learned about last time in, in our paragraph in, in verses uh, eight through 13. And so we look at it from that perspective anyway, but don't, don't think it may not have a broader uh, perspective where with those who rejoice, uh, who may be even outside the family of faith. But look, that's, that's the command that Paul gives us. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And again, this this is is an active thing. It's not a one-off. In in the active voice, it carries this idea of of continuing action. Right now, in the moment, continue to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? And, And again, I think this is a a God thing. And some commentators say, Paul put the rejoice with those who rejoice prior to the weeping or prior, uh, because uh, you and I have a problem sometimes rejoicing with people who are celebrating victory and gain in their life. You know why? Because a lot of times we are selfish and greedy and envious, right? And so maybe sometimes it's hard for us to rejoice with people who are doing well and succeeding and they're rejoicing in their success when we feel like that we are failing or not meeting up to the standards that we have set for ourselves or the world or someone has set for us. So sometimes it may be hard for us to rejoice in a legitimate way, but Paul is making the point here that we are to embrace the success of others, and we ought to we ought to celebrate with them, especially those who are in the family of faith, celebrate when God brings victory in their life in whatever capacity that victory is. We ought to rejoice with them that God has given them victory and shown favor uh, upon them, and not be you know an envious old prude who 's jealous of what 's going on in someone else 's life and Again, I think that 's part of the old nature, the human flesh for us to be envious and jealous and, uh, you know, competitive. But Paul is saying we ought to literally rejoice with, and again, I think in particular our brothers and sisters in Christ when God has brought them great victory or shown them great favor in their life. And, you know, one of the reasons I think, and we'll see it later on, is because, guess what? If you've come into faith, if you've, if you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, God's shown you great favor, right? We rejoice in that, right? So why not rejoice when God continues to bless those who are his children? And maybe he blesses them in a different way than he's blessed you. Well, let's rejoice because we're all in that sense. When we come to the faith in Jesus Christ, we're all part of the same family. And we ought to rejoice when one of our members uh, receives favor and victory in in life. And then that leads to the second part of this, the, the... Uh, maybe somewhat sadder side, Uh, empathy, verse 15, weep with those who weep. And again, it's not a one-off thing. It's a continual, you know, join in with their sorrow and their weeping. And really it comes from uh, a word that has to do with with uh, wailing at, at a funeral in mourning, right? And if you know Eastern mindset, in particular in those days, that they would wail and mourn for several days over someone who had passed away. But that's what the Bible, and I'm, I'm gonna tell you, this is a hard place for me right here, okay? This is a hard place for me right here to really be empathetic, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm more like one of those guys who's sympathetic, right? I, I see where you're at. I understand it the best of my ability, but it, it is a hard thing for me to get to this place where I weep with those who weep, whereas my wife, on the other hand, it's very natural for her to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. But that's what Paul is calling us to do as believers, to Get into the burden, you know, bear one another's burden. Come alongside of those who are weeping in the family of faith. More than, just a, more than just a superficial, I understand where you're at and I'll be praying for you kind of thing. It's carrying the load with them. Isn't that what family ought to be about anyway? Is when we find one of our members burdened and beat down. That we come alongside of them, and we 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 try to bear under that load with them, and bring them up out of that place that they are in. So Paul reminds us of that in uh, Romans chapter twelve, verse five. He's already told us. Listen to what he says. So when uh, so we though many are one body in. Christ and individually members one of another. You remember we talked about being intertwined with one another? We ought to be empathetic to those who are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus because we are part of the same family. And then listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's a picture of the body of Jesus Christ. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We ought to be that connected as a body of believers. And it's sad to say sometimes in the family of faith that we are very disconnected. And in our modern society, sometimes we even become more and more disconnected with one another, don't we? May the Lord grant us empathy in the body of faith. That leads to harmony. And the reason I chose harmony because I think in the ESV, they render it uh, harmony. So (laughs) I, I chose that word. But really, when you think about this passage, verse 16, one, two, three, four different thoughts in verse 16. And these four thoughts, all have something to do with the way that we think, okay? Although it's translated harmony in the ESV in the English, <clears throat> this first phrase says live in harmony with one another in the ESV, I think the, the Lexham English Bible captures it in its truest essence, they translate this passage think the same towards one another think the same thing toward one another and in every one of these passages that we every one of these statements we read in verse 16 all of them are centered around this Uh, Frame, which is the, the Greek word, this idea of exercising our mind. So it's how we think about ourselves and how we think about other people and how we think about circumstances and situations that we may find ourselves in. So it goes all the way back to what Paul tells us in chapter 12, verse 1. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. Our redemption ought to change the way we think. And I think Paul bears that out in a very uh, practical way in verse 16. So he says, Think the same thing toward one another or live in harmony. Be, be single-minded in our uh, pursuit of the kingdom of God, right? As the family of faith, be single-minded in that. And not only that, we need to think not too highly of ourselves as Paul has already told us before in, uh, in Romans that we ought to have the right kind of attitude toward one another in the family of faith. And he goes on to say in, in chapter 15, we'll see this idea again in verse five. It says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, and the ESV renders it the same way, live in such Harmony with one another in Christ Jesus. Now, the uh, Lexham English Bible uh, has it in uh, accordance with the way they translated verse 16 before in the idea of thinking. They say, let God grant you to be in agreement with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. Jesus. And so this harmony is about us thinking together, being like-minded in the family of faith, that we are focused on the same goals and the same, you know, uh, things uh, that God has called us to be about. We are we are single-minded in that we are centered on Christ, we're centered on the gospel, and we're focused on bringing glory and honor to God with our lives and by being missionaries if you will in the place that God has called us and appointed us to. And then Paul goes on with this idea of thinking rightly. In the second part of verse 16, he says, excuse me, do not be haughty. And it really comes from a word that means high, okay, or lifted up, lofty. And then it has the word about exercising your mind. Do not think too highly, okay? And it really parallels what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 20, when he's talking about the branches that were uh, grafted in and the ones that were broken off. And then he warns those Gentiles who were uh, wild olive branches that were grafted in, don't get too haughty about your being grafted in. Listen to what he says. That is true that those that is, those natural branches were broken off. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but... Fear, and it's the, it's the exact same two words that are used in that phrase as we find in this phrase here about being high-minded. So Paul's saying don't be high-minded about yourself. And then look at uh, chapter 12, verse three. He's already told us this before. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think and we talked about that when we were in verse 3, right? That's one of our problems as human beings, isn't it? That too often we think more highly of ourself than we ought. And I think that one of the things, one of the dynamics that are going on in, that, in this section is Paul still has in mind this Jewish-Gentile uh, relationship right, and one thinking more highly of themselves than the other, and Paul is warning them in this first century context, don't be like that. Why? One, because all of them have been charged uh, by Paul to be under sin, right, and be guilty before God, and all of them must come to God the same way and find righteousness in God the same way through faith in Christ alone. So in that Since we are all the same, dirty, rotten, sinful wretches who need to be redeemed by God through Jesus Christ. And when we come to Christ, we are unified in him right? We are all forgiven in that same way by Christ. So we ought not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We ought not look down our nose on someone else because all of us had to come the same way to God because all of us were just as guilty as the next guy, right? And so he's saying, have a right understanding about who you are. And then he fortifies that with the next phrase in verse 16. He says, but associate with the lowly. It was very interesting... Uh, phrase or word that is used there uh, when it talks about associating with the lowly. The word for lowly or that phrase is translated, it comes from uh, a word in the Greek where we get um, topography, if you will. The root of that word comes from a word we get topography and topography has to do with the land and and topos is the Greek word. It it really means place. So like a place on a map, if you will. A place on the ground. And so The idea behind the word is to not be far from the ground. In other words, don't be high and lifted up. You're close to the ground. So in that sense, be associating with the lowly. And the word for that phrase uh, to associate with has to do with being carried away with, right? Right? And it's it's more than just, hey, I, I'm acquaintance with someone who the world says or someone has deemed in a lowly state. No, I'm carried away with the people who are in a lowly state. I, I'm like Jesus whenever he comes up to the lepers who are called to walk across uh, on the other side of the street and yell and let everybody know that, hey, I'm a leper, I'm an outcast, I'm unclean. And what does Jesus do? He goes over and touches them, right? Why does he do that, right? Because he understands that that they are the created order of God as well, and they have intrinsic worth because God created them, and Jesus goes and he brings to them healing and forgiveness just like he does with a king who's sitting on his throne, right? And you and I ought to go out of our way to associate with those who the world or whom someone has deemed as lowly in repute or lowly in their status in the social uh, order. We ought to be carried away. We We ought to go out of our way to associate with those types of people. And again, you know, sometimes that's easy preaching and hard living too, isn't it? Because we have our own idea of what, society expects of us, and so we try to avoid things that we think would tarnish us, and sometimes that that means we try to avoid people that we think would tarnish us, right? But what did Jesus do? Jesus went to those who needed him, I say needed him the most, he went to those that the world had considered to be an outcast. Those who were high and lifted up and were high-minded about themselves, what did he do with them? He was stern with them in their self-righteousness. For those who were broken and lowly in spirit, he showed them grace and mercy. And you and I ought to be the same. Because guess what? If you look at it from a spiritual perspective, all of us were lowly. All of us were lowly. And what did God do? He condescended himself, and he associated with the lowly. And he brought us up out of our low estate. and he redeemed us in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say in verse 16, the last aspect of this thinking rightly. He says, never be wise in your own sight. You know, really, the language there, don't come to be wise on your own or by or by yourself or from yourself. We we all have a sense of wisdom in, in this world, right? And in our own minds, we have a sense of wisdom. But where does true wisdom ultimately come from? True wisdom comes from the Lord. True wisdom comes from God's word, right? And so you and I need to understand that we we don't know it all. We don't have all the answers, and we're not wise in and of ourselves. We gain true wisdom as a gift from God, and we ought to seek that wisdom from God. We ought to seek wise counsel, people who are steeped in God's Word, people who are steeped in prayer and on their knees before God, and we ought to seek wise counsel from the Lord and not be wise in our own minds. And so, when we become wise in our own minds, I think sometimes we, it, it may cause us to be high-minded. Might it not? Listen to what Robertson says in his uh, word picture about this. is says, Do not have the habit of becoming wise in your own conceits. Believers are to think rightly. Now, this is me. Believers are to think rightly about themselves and about others. Believers are to not think of themselves superior to those uh, that the world has deemed to be lowly. We're to think rightly. And that only happens when God redeems us and transforms us and the Holy Spirit takes residence in our life and and God through the Holy Spirit begins this sanctifying work in our life and as we feast on God's word and as we spend time in prayer before a holy righteous God he begins to conform us into the image of Christ and he begins to transform our mind and cause us to think rightly about who he is, about who we are and then that translates in how we think about each other Father and our fellow man, our neighbor. And so Paul reminds us to let's live at, at harmony, in particular, I think, among the family of faith. And then he will tell us in a moment the best we can with those outside the family of faith. So the next word is honorable or honorably, it comes from verse 17. And It really comes from the second part of verse 17 where the word is, but I think it it covers the essence of what Paul is trying to say in this passage. And so he tells us in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give fault to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, Paul front loads this word, this negative part of the word, no one in the English, in the ESV, uh, in the Greek, and he front loads that on the sentence, and he's, it's really saying, not even one. Do not repay anyone, not even one person, evil with evil. Now, again, that's contrary to, to human nature, isn't it? Because what do we think most of the time as human beings, hey, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you, right? You hurt my family, I'm going to hurt your family, right? You do this to me, you need to get what you deserve in return. You tongue-lash me, well, I'm going to tongue-lash you right back, right? You rip me to shreds on, on Facebook, well, I'm going to rip you to shreds on Facebook, right? We we do all of those kinds of things as human beings, and Paul is reminding us, and this is going to parallel or come to a a head and a summation at the very last verse of this chapter, but Paul is saying, for the believer, we need to be more like our Savior. Now, Jesus didn't, he wasn't a wimp, right? He stood up to those who were in uh, teaching false doctrine. He stood up to those who were uh, manipulating and mistreating people, but what happened when Jesus was on trial? Exactly that, right? <laughs> exactly that. What happened when the Romans were beating him, nailing him to a tree? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now I get it. I'm going I'm to wear this phrase out in this section of Scripture. That's easy preaching and hard living, right? That, that's hard for me to do. It takes God working in me to change me in order for me to get to the place where I don't want to repay evil for evil. That's a God thing in my life. And if you're honest, probably a God thing in your life for us to be able to live like that. Then he goes on to say in that second part of the passage, but give thought. And again, this idea of how we think, right? Give thought. Now, the idea behind that give thought has to do with thinking beforehand. This is not a spur of the moment thing. This is someone who contemplates this situation and says, how am I going to live honorably in the sight of all? That's intentionality, isn't it? That takes forethought and preparation on our part. And how do we get to the place where we can know what is honorable, know what is good and decent? Well, we get it from God. And we get it from God's revealed word to us, right? Right? And doesn't that parallel what the Lord told us through Paul earlier in chapter 12 when we were in our last section? What does true love do? True love abhors what is evil and it clings to, holds fast to what is good. And so if we say that we have been redeemed and we have the love of Christ in us who he shed it abroad in our hearts, We ought to do what Paul says we ought to do as believers. We ought to abhor evil. So if we abhor evil, then why would we use evil to get back at other people? And if we hold fast to what is good, why would we not endeavor to do good and live honorably among all? That ought to be the character of the believer. True love would never render evil for evil, but rather good over against evil. And Paul just piles on in the next few passages, especially when we get to the end, on this idea. And it leads to the next word, which is peaceable, peaceably. And we all have heard this passage before. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live Peaceably with all. Now, the word there, if possible, or that phrase, as it depends on you, really at the heart of that is one word. It's the word dunamis. It's where we get dynamite, but it has to do with power or ability. And so what is Paul saying? As much as it is in your ability, live peaceably with all people. Why does he say it that way? Why does he put this word uh, A in front, the word if in front? Because the reality is uh, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? I can't make someone be at peace with me. All I can do is whatever it is that I have the ability to do to facilitate peace, right? And the if in front of that, the implication is there are going to be times when we can't live at peace with other people because it's not within our ability to do so. But as much as it is in our ability to live at peace, we ought to strive for peace, right? Now, the thing we need to be careful of is that doesn't mean peace at any cost, okay? And sometimes I think we might might think that if we read this passage, or others may look from the outside in when they read this passage and say, you know, believers, you're supposed to live at peace at any cost. Well, no, that's not what the passage is saying, is it? Hence the if possible part of the passage. I like what Luther said about this idea of peace. He said, peace if possible, but truth at all cost. You remember there's a passage in in the New Testament where Jesus says, don't think that I've come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. What's Jesus saying? He's saying the same thing Paul is saying. Matter of fact, a lot of what we're reading in this passage is Paul not necessarily quoting Jesus verbatim, but it's it's using theology that Jesus, Jesus has already presented. He's saying that whenever you come to follow after Christ and you live a life that is not conformed to this world, but is transformed because your heart and mind has been transformed and that you're offering yourself as a living sacrifice to the Lord, there's going to come times when it's going to put enmity between you and someone else because they don't like that and they don't like the Lord. And there's nothing you can do to change that. You do all you can to live at peace, but you don't sacrifice the truth to live at peace. I like what the great late Adrian Rogers said. This is a a quote. It's a a little bit lengthy, but it comes from an article that he was quoted in, in in the Berean in 1996. He said this, it is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. It is impossible to find anyone in the Bible who was a power for God, who did not have enemies and was not hated. It is better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with a multitude. It is better to ultimately succeed with the truth than temporarily succeed with a lie what is he saying? And what am I trying to say? We need to live at peace to the best of our ability, but living at peace does not mean we compromise the truth of God's word. And if you and I stand on the truth of God's word in in this world in which we live, then you can bet your bottom dollar, we will not be living at peace with everyone because there are going to be people who will hate us because they hate God and because they hate the truth of God's word. All I can do is try to live at peace with you, but I refuse to compromise the truth of God's word to manufacture some semblance of peace. Because after all, how does real peace ultimately come? If you think about it in a war sense, how does true peace ultimately come? One side has to win and determine what that peace is going to look like. Well, how does that translate into the spiritual realm? The only way true peace can come in your life and in my life is when we bow the knee to Jesus Christ, when we surrender to the will of God. How is that going to translate into society? The only way true ultimate peace will come is when every human being bows their knee to Jesus Christ and surrenders to the will of Jesus Christ and we begin to think the same way about God and and each other, right? Well, we know that's not a real possibility until Christ comes again. But in the meantime, to the best of our ability, without compromising the truth of God's word, we do the best we can to live at peace with all people, knowing that there's always that if, right? That it's not always possible. And then that leads to, got three more, we'll be done. I don't even know what time it is. Selfishly. uh, uh, selflessly, not selfishly, selflessly. All right. Listen to what he says very quickly. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Goes back to don't render evil for evil. Right. But leave it to the wrath of God for it is written. Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. And really this idea of leave it to the wrath of God is, is give no place Give no give place to the wrath of God, rather. Give place to the wrath of God. In other words, get out of the way and let God do what God is going to do. You don't take God's role and try to do it yourself. Allow God's wrath to work. Allow God to bring justice on those who have mistreated you, those who have reviled you, those who have persecuted you. Don't take justice into your own hands. Give it over to God and let him repay. Isn't that what the prayer was uh, under the altar in Revelation chapter 6? When those who have been beheaded for their testimony, for their faith in Christ, they prayed to the Lord. How long, Lord, will it be before you avenge us? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You and I need to leave vengeance to the Lord. There's no place in our life for Vengeance. Let God do what God's going to do. Now, he may not do it in the the way we think it ought to be done. He may not do it in the time we think it ought to be done. But I guarantee you, God will bring vengeance upon those who remain in their sin and die in rebellion against him. But see, with God, there is always this opportunity for repentance, right? I might not give an opportunity for repentance. But God always gives an opportunity for repentance. And when God brings judgment and his wrath upon someone, it is just and it is justified. And we need to leave that over to the Lord. Listen, Jesus has already said this. And Paul is really just sharing with us the theology of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said. And again, this is that easy preaching, hard living thing. Listen to what Jesus says in this verse in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus says in chapter five, verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And that's why I say, hold on just a minute, right? If somebody slapped me on the cheek, I'm going to tell you, it's got to be a God thing in me that allows me to turn the other one, okay? And this is not not right, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is not right. Don't emulate me in this. I I like what someone else says. Hey, I ain't got but two cheeks, (laughs) That's, that's the human nature, right? That's the fleshly nature. That, is, that, that would be a very hard thing to do. That has to be God in you and in me to allow me to endure that and to turn, not, not just step away and say, hey, you got one, right? No, offer up the other chink. That is contrary to everything in my flesh. God has to redeem that and change that in me for that to happen. That's really what Paul is selling us. You leave it up to God. And Jesus goes on in that passage with more stuff, right? That's enough right there. I just need help with that one. Then I worry about to go on the extra mile and, and to give him my tunic away, right? So, you and I need to leave that up to the Lord. And that's a a God thing. And that leads to the next to the last word, the penultimate word, compassionately. Look what he says. Not only are we not to avenge ourselves, but give way to the wrath of God because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Not only that, Paul says, but to the contrary. Here's what you need to do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Well, here's what I want to say about my enemy. If you're hungry, I hope you starve to death. That's what my flesh wants to say about my enemy, especially if it's one who just slapped me in the face. You think I want to feed that person? No, I don't want to feed that person. But God says to me, if your enemy is hungry... Live honorably among all. Give the man some food. Give the woman some food. Wow. That's contrary to human thinking. That has to be a God thing in our life. If he is thirsty, well, give him something to drink. And here's the saving grace in this verse, okay? Here's where I can say, Yay, man, Lord, all right? It's hard for me to say, Yay, man" on the first part. Okay, because I won't say, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, Lord, not me." But God says, "This is the way you ought to be." If you say you're redeemed, and if you will do this, the Bible says you will heap burning coals of fire on his head. And then we got to we got to say, "What does that mean?" Right? What does it mean to heap burning coals of fire on someone's head? Well, a couple of different ways people generally look at that. It, it it comes from the Old Testament. Paul's bringing that into the New Testament. One way people look at it is that it is going to bring shame on that person because you've treated them so well and they've treated you so badly and it's going to bring shame and lead them to repentance, okay? And then other people look at it this way, that this is, bring, this is a, a figure of speech saying that it's bringing God's wrath upon their head, okay? I like the second part. Uh, the second one better than the first. but you, you got to make your own decision on that. The way it's used in the Old Testament, is almost always in a negative sense in this bringing coals of fire on someone's head in the sense of judgment. And that's why Schreiner, in his commentary looks at it that way, that this is ultimately bringing God's judgment on their, on their head. Now you can read the, the, the data and you can make up your own mind on that. I, I think it may do both if you really want to know the truth about it. If they continue in their sinfulness, what has God already told us? If they continue in that way, ultimately his wrath will come down on their head. But in our treating them civilly, God can use that, can he? To bring shame upon them in the, as far as their evil actions and maybe lead them to repentance. But I can't worry about what they do. That's, that's what not, not what Paul is saying to me, is it? He's not saying worry about what this person is doing. He's saying, this is the way you ought to be. If you are a follower of Christ, you have been redeemed by the Lord. This is the way you ought to be. And I say, Lord, I have faith, but help my (laughs) lack of faith, right? Help me be what you said I ought to be. And then the last one, really this is the summary of this section. It's intentionality is the word that I use there because this has to be Something that God starts in me and finishes in me and is something I have to contemplate uh, beforehand, right? I've got to be thinking this way because God's renewing my mind. Look what he says. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that really summarizes everything that Paul just said to us, right? And if you've been following us in Revelation, you'll, you will realize in, the ESV is consistent, at least in this point, that they translate this Greek word the same way here, as they do in Revelation, uh, nikao, so we're, uh, we would know it as nike, N-I-K-E, right? You see it on your shoes. Uh, it means victory or victor, hence overcomer, some translations conqueror, Uh, so you could translate, don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good, and that's really what the Lord is saying, and I think that's what Paul is saying in these passages, when someone's persecuting you, when someone's mistreating you, when someone's bringing evil against you, And he tells us in these passages, don't give in to that evil. Don't let that evil overcome you and you begin to act like that person who's bringing evil against you. Don't let evil have victory in your life. Well, how do we overcome that? We overcome it the way God has already told us to overcome it. We abhor the evil and we hold fast to what is good. Isn't that what the last part of that phrase says? How do we overcome evil? How do we have victory over evil? By doing good. How do we know what is good? Good from God and his revealed word. And how does that begin to work out in our life? It's when God redeems us in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes residence in our life and God through the Holy Spirit begins to transform our minds. And when God transforms our minds and causes us to think rightly about who he is and about who we are, it impacts how we interact with those that are around us. That's how we overcome evil with good. That's how we love our neighbor as ourself, right? And so Paul, again, illustrates to us that if you, come to, if you claim to have been redeemed by God, it will impact the way you think, and the way you live. And if it doesn't, then I think we need to follow Paul's advice in another place to examine our faith, self to be sure that we're in the faith. And don't leave out of here, you know, because a lot of people listen to what I just said and they'll say, hey, man, he's preaching works based salvation. No. What I am preaching is salvation is by Christ alone, right? Through faith alone, but when you come to Christ through faith, it will result in righteous actions in your life. Now what James says after all, faith without works is what? Well, it's dead, right? It is dead because faith in Christ, the redeeming work of God will cause us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Not perfectly in one moment, but we will be growing ever closer to resembling our Savior the longer we walk with him on this earth. So today, I don't know what uh, the Lord has spoken to you about in your life. Maybe there's some areas in this. Hey, I, I'm honest with you. I struggle in some of these areas in my life, and God's still working on me in some of those places. So maybe that's you today. Maybe your prayer before the Lord today is, Lord, Help me to resemble what you've called me to be in Scripture. Help me to overcome those areas of weakness in my life. Help me to become more like my Savior. And maybe today you don't even know the Savior. Maybe you are outside of the family of faith, and you need to come to faith in Christ. Well, that's your prayer today. Lord, save me. Whatever it is that God's spoken to you today about, uh, in just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to that and do what God's called you to do. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to be in your house and be in your word. And I'm asking, Lord, today that uh, just like I revealed in this text, Lord, there's some places in there that's tough for me, and I need you to, to change me and help me in those areas, Lord, to be more like Jesus Christ. And Father, I'm sure there are others in this audience who are the same way in some areas, and I pray that you would help them in that same way. For Lord, those who may be lost in in our midst today, that you would draw them to faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll give you the glory for everything that you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.